0: Today we, be, we begin this brand new series called Five Habits of a Disciple. And uh, I have to say I'm, I'm pretty excited about this series uh, because it, it's going to look at our lives as followers of Jesus. Easter has changed everything. The resurrection has changed everything. Not only our end, but also it's changed right now. Yes, it's changed our ending. the grave isn't our end, but it's also changed who we are and what we do here and now as we live our lives. And so as we, we go through this entire series, kind of the two overarching uh, questions that we're going to be answering is, first of all, what is a disciple? And then secondly, am I a disciple? So one's more generic, one gets a lot more personal. Am I a disciple? It's a good question to wrestle with. And and right up front, I know the question today, the focus is what is a disciple? And I'm going to tell you right away. uh, A disciple is a follower who puts into practice what they have learned. A disciple is a follower who puts into practice what they have learned. Amen. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Yeah, I see you, Simon. Uh, But that's what a disciple is. And we're going to explore that this morning and explore the next five weeks what that looks like. What do we learn from Jesus to put into practice? As I said, Easter has changed everything. The resurrection has changed our ending. And so the question we're going to start with today and answer is, what do I have to do to obtain eternal life? If the end has been changed, if the grave has been conquered, what do I have to do to achieve it? After all, we're in this discipleship series and what did I just say? A follower, a disciple is a follower who puts into practice what they've been taught. And so what do I have to put into practice to gain eternal life? It's what a man asked Jesus in Mark chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Mark, the second gospel. Uh, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus, is on his way to Jerusalem for the very last time. Uh, it's just a few weeks before he dies when this man comes running up to Jesus and asks him this very question. And so let's jump in. We're in Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's stop right there. This, this uh, account is recorded for us in, in Matthew and Luke as well, and as we look at those three accounts, including Mark, uh, we get a full picture of who this man is. He's young, he's wealthy, and he's godly. He is enthusiastic, he's energetic, he's passionate about God, zealous for God, and he wants to know what he has to do to gain eternal life. Uh, he wants to make sure that everything is checked off to his box. Uh, he is morally upright. He's ethical. Uh, he would be every parent's dream for a son-in-law. He relished the opportunity to go to the synagogue. He loved when the festivals came so he could go to the temple. He loved God, and he thought he was loved by God for the extraordinary life that he was living. And so he approached Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what Jesus says. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus essentially says, you want to know what you have to do to inherit eternal life? You already know. Keep the commandments. You shall not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Keep these Perfectly, and you will live. And what does the man say? All of these I've kept. I've done it. I have kept these commandments. How could he say that? It's because he was looking at these commandments as the externals. What do I do on the outside? Physically, he had never murdered anybody. Physically, he never committed adultery. Physically, he never stood and gave false testimony against his neighbor. He never defrauded somebody. Physically, on the outward appearance, he honored his father and mother all the time. They told him to do something. He did it. So externally, he could say he kept these laws. What he missed out on and what his understanding was where he was missing in his understanding was that it's not just about the externals, it's about the internal as well. And that's why Jesus says this Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad. Because he had great wealth. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him enough to expose the sin that was in his heart. The reality was this man couldn't even get past the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. He thought he was keeping all of these commandments and yet he didn't even pass the first one as he had another god the irony is that if you looked at the externals this man looked like he loved and honored god above all that he had no other god why because he was probably at the temple or the synagogue every saturday every sabbath he probably studied the word and yet what was going on in here is he had love and trust and he found his security in his wealth more than God. It's not about the externals. It's not about going through the external checklist to enter into eternal life. Now, Jesus is not saying in order to follow him, you and I have to go sell everything, be poor and destitute, and and live a poor life, and that's what a disciple is. No, he is addressing this man that he knows is breaking the first commandment and he doesn't realize it. And he loved them enough to expose his sin. And the man went away sad because he had great wealth. In other words, it seems the man wasn't willing to do what Jesus said to follow him because he loved his wealth more what is Jesus trying to get this man to realize? You want to know what you have to do? You have to keep the law perfectly. And Mr. Rich Young Man, you haven't done it. And so our first point this morning is this. Disciples know that they can't do anything for salvation. This rich young man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you want to know what you have to do? Keep the commandments. And it should have dropped the young man to his knees and said, I can't do it. But it didn't. You want to know what you have to do to earn salvation? You can't do anything. And as disciples who are going to put some, uh, are followers of Jesus who put what they learn into practice, we have to put this into practice, and that is that we can't do anything for salvation. The man thought he was good. The man thought he was standing firm because of the good life he lived. And he thought that was his reason for salvation. And it's really no different today, is it? Even within the Christian church, what belief is coming up more and more? Over 50% of the Christian church believes that if you are a good person, you're going to go to heaven. That good people go to heaven. If you go around asking people, why, why are you going to heaven? Or why should God let you in? What are they going to say? Well, because I'm a faithful husband. I'm a faithful wife. I, I'm a good dad. I'm a good mom. I give to my church. I volunteer. Uh, I, I don't do any horrible crimes. I'm a good citizen. That's why. Why? I'm a good person. And do you want to know something? You want to know a secret? If you were to ask me, and I I answer from my emotions and my heart, I'd probably say the same thing. I like to think I'm a pretty good guy. I like to think that I do good things. I like to think that I've honored my father and mother. And I'm glad my parents are watching online and not here to see their look. I like to think that I've been good. Do you know what the problem is? Look at verse 18. Look at what Jesus says. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except Stephen Apt. No. No one is good except God alone. That doesn't mean that people don't do good things. That there are good things that people do in this world, but as far as a good person, no one is good except God alone. That means that I'm not a good guy, according to Jesus. Do you see how countercultural this statement is and this belief? Uh, I, I mentioned this a, a few Sundays ago, I believe, but a, a few years ago, one of the most popular country songs was what? Luke Bryan's I believe most people are good. I believe most people are good. If I were to go around to my friends and in community and talk about how and say things like I'm I'm really not a good guy. There's going to be one or two reactions. One, they're going to keep a close watch on me because I'm a danger to others or the other, they're going to keep a close watch on me because I might be a danger to myself because apparently I have self esteem issues because I don't think I'm a good guy. This is completely countercultural. And yet Jesus says there is no one good except God alone. And why am I hammering this home? Because there's nothing we can do for our salvation. You want to know what you have to do, you can't. You can't do anything because we're not good, according to Jesus. Disciples not only know this, but they have a proper understanding of who they are. Who they are. And it's so important because we look at this statement and what do we say? We say, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. I can't do anything. But do you know what the pride in my heart wants to do? It wants to contribute just a little bit. And so I know that salvation is won by Jesus, yes. But in my heart, pride starts to take root, and what happens? Yes, Jesus won me salvation, but I also feel confident because I'm a good guy. Look at the good things that I've done. And subtly what happens is my confidence, my assurance for my salvation shifts from Jesus to My works, the good deeds that I've done. How do you know if your confidence has shifted? Shifted from Jesus to our works. How do we know? Well, answer these questions Is it easy for you to admit your failures? Is it easy for you to admit your sin? Is it easy for you to say, you know what? I haven't been good enough. Or do we get defensive? When our life is a mess, are we able to say, my life is a mess, and I've contributed to that mess? Or do we try to defend and talk about how good of a person we are and how we don't deserve it? We want to be disciples. And what must we do to inherit eternal life? We have to first recognize there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do for salvation. And that's what this rich young man failed to realize. And he walked away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus takes the opportunity to look at his disciples, and here's what he says. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. with God. Jesus says, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. But not only the rich, then he goes on to say, it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Well, for us who are, are wealthy, and we are all wealthy compared to the rest of the world, two temptations take root in our hearts. Number one, Love, trust, and money, security and money, sure. But also, we are so used to contributing to our problems. If we run into a problem in life, we can contribute and help out and get ourselves out of some problems. We can at least contribute something. And that outward, external problem-solving easily creeps into our spiritual life. I can contribute just a little bit. And that's why Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand how impossible this is. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And it leads the disciples to say, who then can be saved? And that's where we're at. Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God is the God who makes the impossible possible. It seemed impossible to create the world by simply speaking, and yet God said, let there be, and he makes the impossible possible. It seemed impossible for the Israelites to get out of their trouble, and yet God makes the impossible possible as the Red Sea splits and they walk across not on muddy ground but on dry ground. God makes the impossible possible, as it's impossible, and yet a virgin conceives and gives birth to a son. It seems impossible, but God takes on human flesh. It seems impossible, but God dies on the cross, and through the shedding of his blood, all of our sins are forgiven. It seems impossible that the dead die and placed in his tomb, and yet three days later he rises from the dead. Our God is a God who takes the impossible and makes it possible. And what He's done for you and me is He's made the, impossible for the impossibility of you and I entering heaven, He's made it possible. And He's done everything it's taken to make it possible for you and me. And that's your next point. God alone makes salvation possible. Not in a possibility of, well, it's out there, go get it. No, no, no. God has done it. God has won your salvation. He has made it possible for you and me to fit through the eye of the needle, so to speak, and enter into eternal life. He has taken your sins, your track record that seems impossible to get over, and He has completely removed it through the shedding of His blood. He's taken the impossibility of you and I to live perfect because that's what God requires, a perfect life. He's taken the impossibility and he made it possible as Jesus literally kept all the commandments since he was a boy. Never sinned once, not externally, not internally. And Jesus gives you that record. Jesus, when he died, Conquered the impossibility of of death as he rose from the dead so that your salvation is one. There is nothing that you can contribute. There is nothing that you have to do. There is nothing that you have left undone. And we know it because what did Jesus cry from the cross? Right before he died, he yelled, It is finished. Not his life, though it was. But he was stamping his Approval. he was making his declaration that your salvation the forgiveness of sins a perfect life accomplished it's done through him there's nothing you have to do you are completely forgiven and you have the perfect life you need through Jesus to enter into eternal life what must you do to inherit eternal life recognize you can't do anything but that your Savior has done it all for you, and it's yours. If you're here today, and and your confidence is in the good life that you're living, know what this message does. What this section of Scripture does is it completely obliterates our pride. We cannot rest on the good life that we're living and the good things that we've done because that's not going to get us eternal life if you're here today and you're despairing because you haven't lived a good life, because you know your sins, you know the mess you're in, you know how you have failed again and again and again, this section of Scripture gives you hope. It gives you confidence. It gives you peace. Because your salvation isn't through your deeds, it's through your Savior's works. And he says it's done. Your salvation is complete. Eternal life is yours forever. And that's what the message of the Bible is all about. The message of the Bible is not about what life I should live. The message of the Bible is summed up in John chapter 20, the very end. These are written, talking about scriptures, these are written that you may live a good Christian life. No. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name it's all about the message of done your salvation is done eternal life is done and it's that message of done that leads to the doing and that's your last point today the message of done leads to doing not the other way around it's not the message of doing leads to done no it's already been done your salvation is won. your salvation is secure your salvation has been won through the shedding of Jesus' blood and the resurrection. Your sins are forgiven. You stand perfect with a status of perfect before God. And that message of done leads to our doing. And that is so important for you and me as we start this discipleship series. Because we're going to hear over the next couple of weeks how a disciple puts into practice praying with others and for others looking for opportunities to spread the message of Jesus, how we listen to Jesus, how we talk with people, how how we look for people to to invest in. We're going to look at all these different things and these different ways that we put uh, Jesus into practice in our life, and yet that message of doing comes from the message of done. We are secure in our salvation, one, that now we want to go and do Out of thanks and praise and glory and honor for what our Savior has done for you and me. What must you do to enter eternal life? Recognize you can't do anything, but then give God thanks and glory and honor that eternal life, salvation, forgiveness of sins has been won for you through His Son Jesus. What joy we have today. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we praise and thank you that you have made the impossible possible. We cannot enter eternal life on our own. We can't live the perfect life that you you, uh, called us to live uh, because we're sinners. We're not good enough. And yet that's a joyful place to be because we know that you are good enough, that you have been good enough, that you died to pay for all of our sins. We stand forgiven and dearly loved before you. We stand with the status of perfection because of what you've accomplished for us. And it's through you that our salvation is complete. Fill us with confidence, fill us with hope, fill us with assurance that eternal life is ours through you. Not through our works, but through you and you alone. That message will bring us joy. That message will inspire us and motivate us to live lives for you. But it's not the doing that leads to the done. It's a message of done that leads to us doing out of thanks and praise and glory and honor for what you've done for us. What joy fills our hearts today and always. We thank you. Amen.